Liverpool's defensive dismay, Arsenal's cool heads, Conte's Spurs woes, and has Haaland made Manchester City worse? I'm Dan Burke, this is the One Football Podcast, and I'm joined today by Matt Froelich. Good afternoon. And Lewis Ambrose. Happy New Year to both of you. Happy New Year, gentlemen. Our first podcast of 2023, of course. Did you both uh, enjoy the festive period? Uh, I did until Spurs came back on. <laughs> no, it's been absolutely terrible. And I stayed in Germany, so I didn't get any mince pies this year. So I was actually, it was a terrible time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't like mince pies, so that was uh, that was not an attractive proposition for me. But uh, yeah, I'm sure you had a lovely time, Lewis. Uh, yeah, I did. And then Spurs came on and I continued to have a lovely time. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. I was waiting for that. Did you get any uh, any football-themed Christmas gifts? That's the, the big question. Oh, I got a... Uh... I got a like a blanket, like a rug, um, that is in the pattern of the Piccadilly Line tube seats because Arsenal and TFL <laughs> released the range and it's very, very comfortable <laughs> and reminds me of home. Oh, that sounds very nice. Wow. How about you, Matt? Uh, I got singing lessons from my girlfriend. So if you if you hear the Spurs crowd sound completely <laughs> on pitch, in in tune, right, then then it's me. Then it's me sounding wonderful. Fantastic. That's the, the best I could do for a football-related gift. <laughs> All I got was this Kevin De Bruyne uh, coaster. <laughs> um, my, my collection of Manchester City tat is growing grow every, every birthday and Christmas. I get a little bit more from my parents, so uh, that was it for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then we'll move on, because we've got plenty of Premier League stuff to talk about today. Um, we've, uh, you know, the Premier League is back um, has been for a couple of weeks now, and we're getting right into the New Year fixture uh, list. Um, we're going to start with a game which took place on Monday night between Brentford and Liverpool. Brentford winning 3 1, uh, condemning Liverpool to uh, another defeat this season. It's not looking great for them. Um, what did you make of this performance from Liverpool, Matt? Was it was it disastrous? I mean, they, they dominated possession, they had a fair few chances, they, they dominated the XG, and yet they've been beaten 3 1. Was it a, a really worrying sign from Liverpool for you? Uh- yeah, they were kind of so easily turned over. Like when when they were out of possession, they had a lot of the ball, but it seemed like Brentford looked really dangerous on the counter. I mean, that's a lot of credit to them uh, and and to the way they set up and to how they attack, especially in Buemo, who I think is brilliant. But in previous years, Liverpool's press has been so consistent. And as soon as they lose it, they sort of win it back within a few seconds. And that's just what allows this, the relentlessness of, of how they play football. And it didn't really seem like that. I was watching the game thinking, yeah, they're in control for the majority of it. They've got the ball. They looked a little bit blunt going forward, like the front three didn't gel so well. And yeah, the, the, there was one bit in the first half, there was a good chance. Uh, I think it was Wisser who might have got in behind or in Buemo. There was just a simple counter-attack. Brentford just turned, played it in behind mm-hmm. Van Dijk, who was on the halfway line, and they were in. And there seems to be a little bit of, um, uh, trying to find the right word, sort of a few flaws in their defensive game that really leaves them exposed that we haven't haven't particularly seen in the last few years. Yeah, they've... Uh, uh, Conceded 51 big chances this season. I read earlier, which is uh, which is quite a lot. I think you can agree. Uh, most and mo- uh, more than most of their rivals in the Premier League. That's for sure. Um, Virgil Van Dijk taken off at half time in this game. Lewis um, Klopp did say afterwards that it's because he was uh, he was feeling his hamstring. But is it fair to say Van Dijk is um, is looking not quite like his old self this season? His, his form has been a bit of a worry. Yeah, it's hard, sort of. No, there's a bit of a chicken egg situation. I think. Like, I don't think Van Dijk's been quite the same since coming back from that serious ACL injury anyway I think he lost a little bit coming back there he's not reached the same levels he was at before that but I think Liverpool are just so porous in midfield that Van Dijk has so much more to do at the moment um you know Canate 
didn't cover himself in glory at any point against Brentford either. So I feel like Van Dijk sort of put in, he's got more fires to put out, if you like. So I don't think he's been great, but I think he's been a bit exposed as well and it's making him look a, a hell of a lot worse. You think back to that great Liverpool team a few years ago, Henderson, Fabinho at the top of their game, Wijnaldum, nothing even got through to Van Dijk, really. Like he, he obviously, he dealt with everything when it did come through, but he didn't have that much to do back then. Uh, and then he was imperious when, when he sort of was challenged. Now he's just being challenged so much more often that I think these mistakes are, are inevitable. He, he looked off the pace last night, but I, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And, and if Klopp, I'm sure Klopp wouldn't have taken him off just for a performance. And I don't think Liverpool are stronger with with Matip and Kanate on the pitch without him. So I'm sure there was some sort of hamstring issue there. But the issue really, I think, starts further forward and, and how much is getting through to that Liverpool back line and why they have to deal with so much in the first place. Yeah, they look very kind of sluggish to me in every every department of the pitch. Even Salah is not really contributing much at the moment. Not looking very dangerous, and just uh, yeah, the, the transitions were Brentford were just were just sort of cutting through them at times. It was um, it was quite strange for a team at this stage of the season, really. Um, Klopp was saying that he thought that third goal, Matt, was a, a foul from uh, Brian and Buemo on on Canate. Uh, do you think he had a point there? I thought he might have had a slight point. Uh, maybe I was I was watching it on German TV, and from what I understood, certainly the commentator was saying, "Yeah, this is the Premier League, mate. This is the Premier League." And I was like, "Yeah, I kind of agree <laughs> that it maybe it was a foul, but it just looks so soft." I'm really glad it was given, to be honest, because it just given I don't know, given Canate's brilliant defensive work that he normally does, like for him to just was it a nudge? Was it a bit of a coming together? You would have thought that he would have been stronger, and it kind of looked like he. He fell over afterwards. Mm. I don't know. It all looked very clumsy. And if a foul was given, you'd say, all right, yeah, there's a bit of a nudge. But personally, I thought Obama applied a lot of pressure and, and got his rewards for it. Maybe that's me being a bit harsh. <laughs> no, I think that's uh, that's fair enough. It's uh, you've definitely got to be strong in that situation, haven't you? And yeah, another good result for yeah. Brentford Lewis, uh, taking another big scalp this season. You know they've beaten uh, Manchester City, Manchester United. What do you think that makes them such a such a tricky opponent for the bigger sides in these games? I mean, the set pieces, firstly, like they had, <laughs> was it the ball in the net four times in the first half and, mm. and a couple disallowed, really unfortunately. They're just chaos, just pure chaos in midfield. They battle for every single ball. I mean, that, that one that Klopp wanted disallowed, by the way, if, if that was the other way around and the other team got a penalty for it, he would lose his mind. So there's no <laughs> way for me that, that that's a foul. Um, I'd actually quite like to see his reaction if a penalty was given for, for that going the other way around. <laughs> There's, um, you know, but I think that sort of sums them up. You just can't rest for a second against Brentford in these games. And once they get their noses in front, they just don't really let it, you know, they're a dog with a bone. It's when Liverpool came out of the second half so early and they look really good. Um, Darwin Nunes had that goal disallowed. Then they did get the goal with, with Oxlade Chamberlain. And I think most teams would have crumbled there and, and Liverpool would have been spurred on. But Brentford just didn't give them a sniff and, and they're so well organised. They sit back behind the ball, but they don't, they're not passive. They do it with aggression. They don't let you rest. And then they're always looking for another goal. You, you saw it against Man United as well when they battered them. Uh, you saw it at Manchester City. You know, how many teams would have been happy to just draw the game at Manchester City? Brentford when they got their chance to to break, they broke forward and they broke forward with three, four, five, six men because they don't ever really just settle for for a point, for a nil-nil. They think and they 
clearly they've got a point that they can beat all of these teams and it's working. Yes, indeed. And uh, and Liverpool, Matt, uh, since we, we last did a podcast, they've signed Cody Gakpo from PSV. He hasn't uh, quite made his debut for the club yet. That was a, a player that we identified during the World Cup, obviously, as a, as a very good good uh, proposition. Um, it's a good signing for Liverpool, but it's not really the sort of player they, pro- they probably need at this moment in time, is he? Um, I... Maybe not. I, I agree with Lewis that their midfield desperately, desperately needs an upgrade. I think that's why there was so much talk about uh, Bellingham. There was so much talk about the, uh, Zachariah before he went to Juventus like a year ago, this time last year. Um, but I think up front, maybe they can cover up a bit of the, uh, a bit of the poor defensive performances by going for a, for a score one more than you style of football. They had a few chances in the first half, definitely, which if they've taken them, you know, the game looks completely different. Uh, I think Gakpo will still be a really, really good player, but yeah, you're right. They probably want to bring in another midfielder. It's just, it's just always a little bit more difficult in January, but I don't like Klopp talking about not being able to spend money and all this <laughs> stuff. Like he, the, Liverpool still spend money. They spent an extraordinary amount of money. They have done under Klopp and they've spent 40 million before the window was even open. So, um, yeah, that, that angle I don't quite buy into, but I think they definitely, definitely, they need a midfielder first and foremost, can go three games in a row without then getting injured just to be on the pitch to even make a difference. Never mind actually then going and doing it because the, the consistency of their selection in the midfield is really poor. Um, and it says something when Harvey Elliott's, you know, the first midfielder on the team sheet because he's the one who's always fit. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh, moving on now to Arsenal, who uh, who uh, finished the year with a 4-2 victory uh, away at Brighton on New Year's Eve, um, going seven points clear at the top of the table. How are we feeling about Arsenal's chances at this point in time, Lewis? I mean, I've, uh, I've asked you about this a few times over the course of the season. You've been uh, very reluctant to kind of commit and let your emotions get carried away from you in the past understandably so but are you uh, are you starting to get a bit excited now about the way things are going I mean it's been exciting the whole time and I'm just not going to say that Arsenal are like going to win the league or anything after 15 games um, you know we've all we've mentioned it we've seen Man City the last six years in a row go on a run of 14 wins in a row and there's nothing anyone else can do about it uh, yeah like this month I think will be will be really big now um, Arsenal got Newcastle they've got Tottenham away, they've got Manchester United, then they've got Manchester City in February. You know, the sort of next five, six weeks will will probably tell us a lot. And City as well at the same time. That's not to say, you know, that Arsenal just have to get through those games. Arsenal also, and Arsenal fans should be looking at the Man City fixture list and seeing Chelsea and Manchester United and the, the game at the Emirates between the two teams and thinking that City could drop points along the way as well. So it's not to say like win all the games and, and City or win all their games and the gap will still be what it is at the moment. I think it's just these are sort of the big ones, the really big tests to to push on and, and maintain that gap or possibly even grow that gap at the top of the table. I think Arsenal have got a great chance. Like I think any any team that ever gets themselves seven points ahead have to consider that they can win the league. And, you know, the the depth of the squad is probably the big question, but they've lost Gabriel Jesus and then scored seven goals in two games without him. So Eddie Nketiah's got a goal in each of them. You don't worry too much. I don't think about them being able to attack still without Jesus. It's with whether or not they can avoid any further injuries, I think. Um, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. But you like as I say, you have to, at this point, this seven points clear, you have to say that a team is going for the league and, and trying to win the league and can win the league. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, as a City fan, I'm I'm very concerned about City's upcoming fixtures. I would say at this moment in time, if we're still seven points behind a month from now, I would say we might have a chance. But I'm kind of worried that that gap's going to grow and that the the margin for error becomes slimmer and slimmer for City all the time. How are you feeling about Arsenal's title chances as a Spurs fan at this point, Matt? Are you uh, are you getting worried? Uh, I wouldn't say worried because it doesn't affect <laughs> Tottenham. Um, it does. We're, we're miles <laughs> behind. Uh, <laughs> um, it definitely yeah. matters, right? <laughs> yeah, it matters. Obviously, be would be annoying, but um, but yeah, on the on the way that they've played, it would be thoroughly deserved. It's not like you know they're getting on a, a getting a title victory on a lucky on a lucky run of games. Um, someone pointed out, I can't remember who it was. Someone pointed out that the the season's almost sort of mid November time. Mm-hmm. I know we're in January, but when you look at the amount of games played, would we be having this conversation if it was mid November after fifteen games? Obviously, the World Cup put you know, delayed the season a little bit. So maybe that would change my answer a little bit, thinking there's more time left of the season, even though there's still, the, you know, so many games to go. Um, worried? Well, I mean, there's nothing I could do about it, so it doesn't keep me up at night. But but yeah, this uh, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't cover Spurs in glory having, having, you know, finished, what was it, above Arsenal for six years or something. And then after all of that, they don't even just finish above Spurs, but, you know, they go and finish top of the table. That would be a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned uh, Nketi there, Lewis, uh, scored in, I think, two games in a row now. Um, do you think he's a, an able enough deputy while, while Jesus is out, or would you like to see Arsenal bring someone else in uh, this month? Yeah, to be honest, I do think so. I think it's something like eight goals in his last 11 Premier League starts now. In all competitions, he's got as many goals as Jesus already this season, so... Like I don't think Eddie Nketiah is a player that's not going to score goals or that he's a player that can't link up and, and do a bit of the the hard work, the pressing, the link-up play, the drifting wide, all of that stuff that Gabriel Jesus does. I don't think he's as good at it, but he can do it and he can fill in and he's probably got a little bit more of a, a poacher's instinct as well when the ball's in the box. I think the, the, the other question is, you know, can Arsenal... I think we reached the point where it was quite obvious what the first choice 11 was, and that included Gabriel Jesus and, and Gabriel Martinelli and Bakayo Saka and Martin Odegaard behind him and around him. I think the question is if they can stay fit, because I think losing one of those players was always going to be a test. And so far, it looks like Arsenal have passed that test. Losing a second, I, I don't see how Arsenal can continue playing the way they're playing and, and winning games and pushing teams back. And scoring the number of goals they're scoring if they were to lose Saka or Odegaard or Martinelli on top. So, yeah, I think as long as those players are available, and, and this is why, obviously, there are links with Mikhailo Mudrik this, this January, and there will be various other links. Jao Felix has been linked with the club because they know that one more injury, and, and that's probably curtains uh, for that front three. As long as Saka and Martinelli are fit and Odegaard's fit, pulling the strings, then I think Nketiah fits in perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Odegaard there as well. Uh, another superb performance for him, getting on the score sheet, a sublime pass for that fourth goal. Is he um, Is he the number one contender for the Premier League player of the season at the moment, would you say, Matt? Uh, definitely. Definitely. And if and if they win it as well, then it's, it's a no-brainer yeah, to pick. There you know, is another Norwegian that's, uh, <laughs> that might get <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. You, you know what's funny, though? I think about the goal scoring and the statistics have almost become so almost one-dimensional that in the same way that if Haaland was to play brilliantly and not score too many, he still wouldn't win awards because everyone would say, oh yeah, but he's paid to score goals. <laughs> From the same 
on the the other side of the coin, if he scores a stupid amount, which he would, people be like, yeah, but he only scored and didn't really do much with it. So I I I, I think Haaland's been brilliant. Don't get me wrong, but I think especially if Arsenal were to win the league, Odegaard pulling the strings and playing the important role that he does, it'd be difficult to look past him. Um, you could probably pick one of these, uh, I guess, outsiders. Um, to 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 win it, but it's probably going to favour whoever wins the league. The league as well. Yeah, that's usually the case. Yeah, uh, we're recording yeah. this on a, on a Tuesday afternoon. Arsenal playing uh, Newcastle tonight. Lewis, another another big test for them. Are you are you feeling pretty confident about uh, about their chances in that game at, at the Emirates? Yeah, I'll maybe look very stupid by the time a lot of people are listening <laughs> to this. Um, and I think it's a bit of a revenge for Arsenal. Obviously, losing up at Newcastle late last season. And and that cost in the the Champions League place as well. I think it's uh, I'm sure that will be on the players' minds and Mikel Arteta's mind. Yeah, I, I I don't know. Newcastle have obviously been fantastic all season. Um, they look really organised. They are really really intense. I think in the way that they play, they they put Manchester City to the sword. Liverpool needed an injury time winner against them. Anfield. So I think it will be a really really hard game. Um, home advantage I'd, pro- I'd probably be a bit disappointed if Arsenal didn't win but it's a big test yep for sure yeah and the uh, the team that are seven points behind Arsenal at the moment are Manchester City after they drew 1-1 at home to struggling Everton uh, earlier on New Year's Eve uh, Erling Haaland opening the scoring in this game getting his 21st Premier League goal of the season I think it's his 28th in all competitions uh, but Matt I mean we, t- we talked about him a little bit there is it possible that uh, City are somehow a worse off team with this prolific goal machine up front that they are not quite sort of hitting the heights and playing the same kind of football that they have been in previous seasons that just sounds that just sounds like nonsense to me <laughs> it, do, it does really because I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where you've plucked that from I couldn't I couldn't probably the honestly table, sit Matt. here yeah but like I couldn't give you an answer that would sound like justifiable that someone comes in and scores that many goals and makes City worse. I, I, I don't know. Would you say if there was more team play about it, the goals would be spread out? But regardless, goals are goals, right? If they were playing brilliant football and, I don't know, Mares had a few more, Foden and Grealish had a few more, you probably wouldn't have this conversation, right? I know it's like a different number of goals, but when Cristiano Ronaldo was scoring quite a lot for Manchester United last season and was by far their top goal scorer, we did all agree that they would be better if he wasn't playing. And now we all agree that they are better, that he isn't there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the, there is a tendency yeah. to kind of funnel, funnel everything through Haaland at the moment. I think, I mean, it, he's far from City's biggest problem at the moment. He's, he's probably papered over the cracks of some pretty shoddy performances for City on quite a few occasions this season. And um, they have had to adapt to, to the way that um, he plays and, and he's had to adapt to, to City a little bit. And I don't think it's quite there yet. I think it might, we may not see the best of this um, relationship between the players until until next season but um, I mean City have dropped points in a third of their games this season it's not great really it's a little bit worrying um, even with the goals that he's scoring they're not scoring as many goals from other areas of the pitch and other, other players who have usually been a pretty reliable source of goals in the past haven't been chipping in with too many it's been a lot of the goal scoring burden has been on his shoulders but it's uh, it, is, it is a bit of nonsense but it is a bit of a narrative that is developing at the moment and uh, if City don't win the league this season I'm sure that's a narrative that's going to grow even stronger it's um, it's a little a slightly weird conundrum that they uh, that Guardiola has to solve at the moment and Another slight problem that uh, we have with City at the moment as, as fans is that Guardiola seems to have become a little bit 
kind of safety obsessed, I would say. He's, uh, you know, the last two games he's played uh, Jack Grealish on the left and Riyad Mahrez on the right, both players who like to kind of slow the game down and keep possession. And Phil Foden can't get in the team at the moment. You know, you think of probably City's best performance of the season was the 6-3 defeat over Manchester United this season when Foden and Haaland both scored hat-tricks were both linking up superbly. And... They've barely played together since then. It's a little bit of a little bit strange. Do you think that's something that that's happened to Pep Lewis that he he, he he's sort of trying to make City just boring and grinding results out almost instead of playing that kind of swashbuckling style that perhaps we'd like to see a bit more from them. I, I think this goes back to I think it's connected to the Haaland point. Um, you know, I think with Haaland, we we all all talked for years, right, about Pep Guardiola and the striker that he wants, and they've got to join in with play and and drop into midfield and rotate positions and complete thirty passes a game. And he had that the last couple of years without an obvious centre forward at City. And I think because Haaland doesn't do that, he wants to pick those slower, less direct players in other positions and and then you've got Grealish and you've got Mares starting these games at the moment instead of Phil Foden. I, I think that's all connected uh, to be honest. Uh, I think, you know, he wants players who are going to keep the ball, carry the ball, tuck inside, be extra midfielders from out wide because he doesn't have his striker being an extra midfielder anymore. So, you yeah. know, I think it's all about the middle of the pitch and controlling the ball and passing the ball and, and like you say, Dan, not taking those risks as much as maybe Phil Foden would. And yeah, like I, I find it hard to separate the two because last season City obviously had Sterling and, and Jesus and Foden. And this season, two of those are gone. One of them's available, but not playing. And Grealish and Mares, Grealish in particular, who didn't start so much last season, has come into the team and more and more often. I, I just find it hard to say that that's not necessarily related to, to Haaland playing and Guardiola wanting to really limit the number of direct players he has in the team. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't help that Grealish isn't chipping in with many goals at all at the moment, um, you know, compared to Foden, who's always been a reliable source of goals. And yeah, you just, I mean, the, the thing that frustrated me about the Everton result the most is that City were one nil up in the first half, controlling the game, but there didn't seem to be much appetite to push for a second goal and really kill the game off. It was almost like they were sort of just chilling on the ball a little bit, just conserving energy. And I, I wondered if that was a bit of a direct tactic um, to to kind of handle the schedule a little bit. But then, you know, when the, the Everton get back into the game in the second half, City have then got to go and try and get that second goal and it becomes becomes a lot more difficult. And uh, yeah, Everton's tactics in that game, uh, you know, came in for a bit of criticism in, in certain quarters, the way they were time-wasting, um, you know, going down injured a lot and, and really trying to break up the flow of, of City's game. Um, is that a, a real scourge on football for you, Matt, that kind of behaviour? Or is it just uh, fair enough the way you should approach a game if you are an underdog like Everton in that situation? Ooh, that's a tough one. The, I would say yes, right? So time wasting really, really annoys me. Like a lot of people are there to watch a football match, not watch people time waste. However, I'm petrified of what sort of rules FIFA would bring in if time wasting <laughs> gets too ridiculous. So I'd probably just leave it as it is because otherwise they'll, I don't know, there'll be some sort of clocks or 30 minute halves or something else that'd just be too ridiculous. I've, I've always said with time wasting though, there should be separate watches for time wasting and it should be immediately wiped off if um a, a team then gains an advantage from it immediately <laughs> if if everton how much time do you reckon everton wasted in the second half dan i feel like the ball was in play for probably about 20 minutes or something 
okay, you mean that if, if like if Man City had gone ahead, then Everton have like gained time to score another equaliser. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Everton have then created their own injury time to score an <laughs> equaliser. It's like, no, well, you wanted to piss around when you were one all, mate. So you don't get that time. That is, that's the only thing I would add in. But I, I do obviously understand that would be very difficult to control and would cause a lot more of discussion. I, I don't mind a bit of time wasting if it's towards the end of the game, but when you see it in the first half, that <laughs> drives me nuts. Yeah. I'm like, guys, it doesn't matter how long you take to restart play. There's 45 minutes of a second half to go. Like, it's just a bit, I don't know. I, I know we praise the bravery of, you know, teams like Brentford not going to the Etihad and time wasting and trying to get away with a draw or whatever. Um, but I could see why a few teams do it. Um, but then again, if if Brentford went for it, didn't time waste, they got hammered 6-0, we'd be like, idiots. You come to the Etihad and try to attack them. Idiots. Like, yeah. so, it, work, it works both ways. It, it just pisses me off when it's too early. Yeah. That's, I don't blame teams for going to the Etihad or wherever and, and playing like that. You know, I don't expect teams to turn up and make it nice and easy for City to play through them and have a, have a nice afternoon scoring loads of goals. Um, it's what, you know, and I don't really blame, it's up to the referee, I think, to control time waiting, to, to control the flow of the game, to make sure players aren't taking the piss. And, but I think it's quite tough for referees as well because how can you prove that a player is feigning injury? If a player goes down injury, you can't then book him and go, oh, no, I don't, I don't believe that you're injured. You know, it's, it's, it's a, bit of a bit of a tough situation for them. For, for for me, it's not even that. What annoys me is when referees, who I'm sure have never played any sort of football, don't understand the tricks that are being played. Like when there's a free kick given and a guy kicks the ball away quickly or he holds on to it for a bit too long and then they're taking a throw in and then there's a little bit of a scuffle. I'm like, ref, you can't be that stupid. <laughs> like you, you, you have to understand that Everton are holding on to a point away at Manchester City. Like you do realise that they're time wasting. Like surely they're not that stupid. Surely not. <laughs> yeah. I refuse to I, believe I, it. Do you think they're worried to just give out cards too easily and then like... You, you set a precedent, right? If you give a card for it once and mm. then it keeps happening and then you send someone off, like you could end the game with like nine versus seven or something. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're probably right in that respect. There needs to be some sort of line drawn where they're like, look, I'm not an idiot. I realise that you're <laughs> trying to hold on to a point, but stop doing this shit or you will get yellow carded and then, you know, eventually red carded. Yeah. Get Matteo Lahoz uh, in the maybe, Premier maybe League. that's a bit harsh. That would really put the cat on the Oh, pigeons, Jesus. That's the guy that got sent home for the World Cup. And the guy who showed 17 yeah. cards at the uh, Barcelona derby the other day. Yeah, That's a man who was not afraid to get his oh, cards out of his wallet. Was, oh. <laughs> right, that'd be absolute carnage if he was in the Premier League. It certainly would, yeah. Uh, another game that took place on New Year's Eve was Manchester United winning 1-0 away at Wolves uh, super sub Marcus Rashford coming off the bench and scoring the winning goal there um, before we got onto Rashford Lewis I was just wondering if you think that maybe Manchester United are involved in this title race at all they are 11 points behind Arsenal but as we said we are still fairly early in the season they are in a, a decent run of form five wins in a row do you think they could get involved in that at all? I, I don't think they I just don't think they're good enough uh, at either end of the pitch really I think Goals, clean sheets. I just don't see them scoring as many or keeping as many as as Arsenal or City. Uh, mm. I think you know, eleven points is a is a hell of a gap to make up, and I struggle to see it happening. Yeah, but top four looks pretty promising for United. Would you say? Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, I would definitely say so. I think, you know, Newcastle, the big question obviously at the moment will be Newcastle and, and what's their staying power like and how do they handle it when teams maybe treat them a little bit more respectfully and, and sit back and defend against them. So that would be the big question with them. Uh, and then you've probably got, you know, United who, who've got a game in hand on, on Newcastle anyway. United, uh, the team that you'd probably say out of them, Tottenham, Liverpool, Chelsea, they look the most convincing, the most consistent. So I would, I would definitely back them um, to be in the Champions League this time next season. Yep, and uh, yeah, Marcus Rashford. So he was he was dropped from this game with uh, he confirmed later that he'd uh, slept through his alarm. Was it or he went back to, woke up and went back to sleep and overslept and missed mm-hmm. the team meeting? Eric Ten Hag standing for no messing about as he as, as he showed with uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. He dropped Rashford from the uh, from the starting lineup and uh, and ended up bringing him on at half time. Is is Ten Hag the kind of disciplinarian that United have been have been waiting for all these years since Sir Alex Ferguson left, Matt? Or is it uh, is this kind of concept being a little bit overplayed? Uh, well, he looks like an absolute bloody genius, doesn't he? Because Rashford <laughs> came on and scored the winner. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, it, it, I think maybe he's a disciplinarian. I'm, I wouldn't, certainly doesn't strike me as the disciplinarian that Sir Alex Ferguson was. I think more than anything is that the board trust him with it. Mm. Like, I couldn't imagine a manager or a club that would be like, you know what? Fine. Release Cristiano Ronaldo. That's absolutely fine by us. Like, I find that that is, that is showing a lot of trust in, in your newly appointed manager who's been there for four months to say, you know, get rid of one of the greatest football players of all time. Obviously, they'll understand what he was like within the squad and, you know, that he's old and whatnot. But I think it's such a massive turning point for the club to be like, we trust this manager. He got the Ronaldo call right. He got the Rashford call right. He's improved their style of football. They've got some good players in now. I think Ericsson has been a brilliant signing for them. Casemiro as well. They're clearly trusting him just the same way that Arsenal, you know, trusted Arteta and the same way that Spurs clearly haven't trusted any manager in about (laughs) seven years. Like it really, it says a lot more about the club um, as well as just Ten Hag you know, being being the right appointment because you can appoint whoever you want, but if you're not going to back them in their decisions or them in the transfer market, it means absolutely nothing. So I think it, it really sets a massive, um, it really sends a good message, I think, to the squad, to the fans, to the board, just everyone that he's the right guy. Uh, so yeah, I would, I don't think earlier you mentioned about the title race. I don't think they're going to be in the title race, but having a say in it in terms of being able to beat the other title contenders, then I think they could have a massive say. Because I think maybe on their day, I know uh, uh, City have got to go to Old Trafford at some point. Um, And Arsenal host United, I believe, because they lost there early in the season. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I still think they could have a say in it. They might not win it, but there's certainly a say as to where it might go. Yep. Yeah, I thought this was a really good game. There's one at Molyneux, actually. Both teams playing some nice stuff. United, I think, were just about deserved winners in the end, but Wolves had their moments, although they didn't create an awful lot of chances. Um, they've still only scored 10 goals this season, the lowest scorers in, in the league. Um, I think that they're looking a bit better under Julian Lopetegui-Lewis, but um, do you think he's going to be the man to turn it around for them? Do you think Mateus Cunha is a good signing for them as well? Uh, they'd better hope so. Like you say, 10 goals <laughs> is... Uh... <laughs> it's not very many goals. Um Poultry. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like they've they've been stuck with Diego Costa up front the last few weeks, and with all due respect to Diego Costa, because I'm terrified of him. Uh, he is old and slow, and just physically doesn't look anywhere near Premier League level anymore. And you know, you think of Diego Costa, and you think of this 
burly physical striker um and i don't think he's really got it anymore to to bully defenders at this level um so yeah it was obviously a bit of a, a last minute solution because of the injuries to to Raul Jimenez and Sasikalajic they didn't have much of a choice but to but to put Diego Costa in the side and yeah Cunha is is a very different type of striker like much more creative a lot more movement and i think with Wolves it's just about finding that mixture and that balance and being able to unlock the players that they've got as well because it's not like it's not like Matthias Cunha is going to come in and score 15 goals and, and then everything's fine. But, you know, there's a lot more to get out of Daniel Pedence, Pedro Neto. And, you know, I, I think there are players there and it, it's down to Lopetegui now to find the balance and the mixture of players that can get performances out of each other and, and finally find the back of their net. You know, Adama Traore is getting on the pitch a little bit more at the uh, at the moment as well. End product's never been quite his forte, but he does trouble defences. So, yeah, I think the players are there for, for Wolves to be perfectly fine. It's about how quickly Lopetegui finds the right mixture. Yeah, for sure. Right, Matt, it's the moment you've been waiting for. It's time to talk about Spurs, who were beaten on New Year's Day, kicking off 2023 with a 2-0 defeat to Aston Villa. Uh, what happened to Spurs here? Where did it all go wrong for them? And is, it, is the end nigh for Antonio Conte, do you think? It's a weird one because I don't think they fire Conte without a plan in mind. And I feel like there's no one else that you're going to get in better at this stage of Conte. I would just love to see Spurs bring in some improvements that are so blindingly obvious to the 60,000 that are there every week and to the rest of millions who watch around the world that are Spurs fans. Like, I've never seen such a massive disparity between what the club think of certain players and what millions of people around the world think of certain players. (laughs) Like, you you could probably all be in agreement that so many um, people wouldn't have the likes of Emerson Royale or Ben Davis or even Eric Dyer at this stage, to be honest, uh, near the team or Hugo Lloris, but they're still there week in, week out. And now there's a January transfer window. And the latest I've heard is that 40 million is too much to pay for Pedro Porro. Um, I must admit, I've seen him in the Champions League. He looks like a very good player. I'm not going to go, you know, heart my sleeve and say he's the answer to all the Spurs' problems. But there just seems to be such a reluctance to change it that I don't understand where anything's going to move forward for Spurs. I mean, the game was so sloppy. It was so slow. There's no... I, I look back if you, I look back uh, uh, in the Premier League even, look around the Premier League, the one turning point in terms of a transfer that Spurs missed out in the last few years is Bruno Fernandes. Like, there was talk about it. He was involved. He wanted to go to Tottenham. Sporting turned it down. He ended up at Manchester United. He is exactly the kind of player that Spurs need. Mm a bit of a maverick, a bit of creativity, you know, someone who knows which direction they're going in, you know, to kick the ball forwards instead of backwards or sideways. Like it's so pedestrian watching (laughs) Spurs and just sort of hoping that Kane comes up with something. I'm not sure what else Conte can do. I mean, uh, from the outside, people are saying, oh, why can't Conte improve the players he's got? You can't polish a turd. (laughs) But he's brought those players in, hasn't he? Like, uh, no, Well, this is the thing. Has he? I thought the same with Jed Spence. Apparently, Conte wanted nothing to do with Jed Spence but the, whatsoever. Like the amount of, I don't think it's fair to say, like, if they've sort of not... I wouldn't say not back Conte, but, like, over the past few years that Spurs haven't... Mm. 
the amount of money that's been spent on just go through like the 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 team at the moment like you know contracts as well free transfers Mm. um yeah they still cost money perisic uh basuma in the summer longley richarlison like it's not like spurs haven't spent any money they've just spent it badly like Mm. yeah the money's not going to be unlimited right like if you if you spend money and you get the deals wrong, then money doesn't appear from somewhere else to sort of sign other players. You're just sort of stuck with the bad signings. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I would definitely agree that, but I think the capability of moving players on at Spurs is is atrocious. I think it was um, Richard Pochettino's first game in 2014 or 15 or whatever it was. Uh, there are still some players in that lineup that are there now. Almost <laughs> a decade on. But, but like, like, Eric the, Dyer's... The, Eric Dyer's playing because Conte likes him, right? Like it's not, it's not because there's nobody. Like he picks him, he wants him to play. But 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 there are better players out there, is what I'm saying. With the Bruno Fernandez example, right? Uh, who are oh, there? Literally off the top of my head, everyone's disappeared. Um, there's so many players though that Spurs are always linked with. It's not quite enough. Liverpool have got a few issues. Forty million, Cody Gakpo. There you go. The transfer window isn't even opened yet. And I'm not saying that you're right, money doesn't appear from nowhere, but for Spurs, a team that have been in the Champions League for many years, yes, they've paid for a brand new stadium, but they're a Premier League club who consistently finish near the top. There is money available. There was a £150 million loan earlier in the summer that the that I think Daniel Levy said £100 million of it is going towards the squad improvements. And it just... I would like to see Spurs basically go for the obvious ones. I know there's a few... Uh, there are gems to be found, let's say, in the transfer market. But it seems to me that a, a Newcastle were the perfect example of this. Newcastle have spent wisely. They haven't spent stupidly because they are good players. Bruno Guimaraes, everyone's talking about him. Arsenal are linked with him. He plays in the Champions League for Lyon. He's probably a pretty good player. We should just go and pay the money for him. And they did, and he's brilliant. Obviously, that doesn't work out all the time, but there's a reason why... So many players are linked with clubs or playing at a top level. For Spurs to go, he's brilliant. He's just what we need. Get to the to the um, the table and then go. Ah, damn, damn. We wanted to spend five million less. Sorry, it's, <laughs> but like it's Basuma absolutely... was, but Basuma was being linked with Liverpool and with Arsenal the last couple of years, and Spurs mm-hmm. went and did exactly that and signed him. And it just it just doesn't work, right? Like, they yeah, spent fifty million in this summer. I think with I think with Basuma. It, to be honest, he hasn't played in the team as much as as much as he should, and in a in a weird sort of way, I don't think he's a a first team player ahead of Hoybio Bentacor in that midfield too. Yes, he's playing now and he hasn't looked great. I agree with you, um, but I I think he was a player that there was more there was more a sort of squad idea of beefing up the midfield behind him. Whereas when it comes to the first team, like there are players who are so so poor. I look around and. The rest of the top six or top seven, if you want to include Newcastle now, none. there are so many players in the Spurs team that wouldn't get anywhere near their starting 11s. And we're supposed to be competing in, in the top four and nobody is taking anyone apart from Kane. And Kulisewski, maybe. He's pretty good on his day. I was just to say, but it probably shows what I know, but I looked at the, the, the business that Spurs have done in the summer, you know, combined with the players that they already had, the manager that they've got, and I thought they might be in for a shout with a title this season. You know, top four should be quite comfortable for them. Conte talking after this game about how those expectations were very unrealistic. I mean, I feel like it would it would suit him quite nicely if expectations were quite low, and then if he if he exceeds those low expectations, he looks like a genius <laughs> then, doesn't he? But is that um 
Is that him sort of paving the way for his own departure? Do you think, Lewis, that he's kind of like trying to trying to slip out the door a little bit and say, "Oh, you know, it's not my fault; it's the the club's fault." That that doesn't sound like what Antonio Conte has done at Juventus <laughs> and Chelsea and Inter. Like, <laughs> like this it is a tale as old as time, right? Like, we can we can sit here and talk about the Spurs players and stuff, like, and say, "Oh, oh, he's not good enough. He's not good enough. He's not good enough." But Eddie Howe has managed Fabian Cher and Joe Willock and John Joe Shelby and Sean Longstaff to third place. And Jolinton, who everyone was laughing at for the last three years, and Miguel Almiron, who Jack Grealish loves. Like, there's a bunch of players at Newcastle, what, Callum Wilson or Chris Wood up front? Like, it's not like Tottenham have a much, much, much worse team than Newcastle. Mm. Um, I do do think Antonio Conte is sort of looking for excuses. I think it's seven Premier League games in a row Spurs have conceded first now. Like, that's the manager. Ten, yeah. Ten, is it, was it ten in all competitions and, or, or ten in the league? Uh, oh yeah, you might be right. It might be ten in all competitions. Yeah, I, don't, but I think it's, it's unacceptable. I think it's seven Premier. But yeah, ten. It's even worse. Like if you if it's happening, you know, not just in the league, but in cup games and Champions League or whatever. Um, I, I don't even know how that's possible. To be honest, ten games in a row <laughs> that the, the you go one nil down. Um, that also means ten games without a clean sheet too. Uh, I, hmm. Yeah, I like. I don't look at. I don't look at this Spurs team and think that it's brilliant. I think. The injuries to, to Kulisevsky in particular have been really hurtful because I think that Conte doesn't set the team up in a way that allows players, uh, it doesn't provide much creativity. He's reluctant to mm. pick creative players. I think Ericsson at, at Inter, it only really happened when there were injuries and then Ericsson came into the team and Inter won the league because he was brilliant. Um, I, ju- I just think that Conte gets in his own way when it comes to picking his team, he, he needs that moment of genius from Kulisevsky, from Kane. I mean, we just talked about yeah. how great Brentford were against against Liverpool and against Manchester City this season, against Chelsea, against Manchester United. Like, um, you do not need to have world class players in every position to keep clean sheets, to create chances. And you know, when Conte's saying, "Oh, maybe maybe fifth, sixth, seventh, after he coached a worse squad to fourth last season. Uh, like I, I do think Dan, I think it's exactly that. I think it's excuses, and I think he's he will be quite happy to to probably leave at the end of the season, and he's just setting himself up for that. Yeah, with, with that in mind, Matt, would it be the end of the world if Conte left Spurs for you, or um, are you kind of desperate for them to see this out a little bit longer and, and see if it turns into something? Because you will do well to probably get a better manager than him, but then maybe there's there is a better manager, maybe Pochettino coming back, something like that might be better for Spurs. I don't know. Yeah. Well- the only thing about Pochettino coming back is you know that he would be in it for a long time. I guess the Spurs are in a real catch-22, whereas if the manager doesn't know if he's staying because he's not been backed, then players aren't going to necessarily want to join if they think there's going to be a new manager in charge in three weeks, three months, however long. Uh, so it puts them in a really difficult position. Um, I think Conte is one of the best managers on a track record that Spurs have ever had. You know, a guy that's led the likes of Juventus and Inter Milan and Chelsea to great success is obviously a massive deal for Spurs to have as the manager. If he goes, the only reason I'd be sad that he's leaving, the only reason is that if a few players, namely the likes of Kane, Kulusevski, um and Christian Romero as well, within the squad saw it as a bit of a, 
at the beginning of the end and decided to also jump ship. That is where the knock-on effect would, would mm. you know, be the most felt, I think, for me and probably a lot of Spurs fans as well. If Conte leaves and there's a manager who wants to be there and a manager who's going to improve the players, but a manager that's backed as well um, with making big decisions, then, yeah, sure, I'd be, I, I wouldn't be too disappointed if he left. I, I agree, by the way, Lewis, is what you're saying, that he should coach players better. But I think there's also a base level of player who just aren't good enough. That's just how football <laughs> works, right? You only get to a certain level if you're good enough. And I've seen it far too often. Spurs, like five five errors this season, three of them have been from Hugo Lloris. Like, oh, he's just not good anymore. Just get him out. What are you doing? What are we waiting around for? <laughs> I, th- I do think, I don't, I'm not saying like Eric Dyer's class, um, I like him, by well, the way, just for the record. I just, I know I can accept that he's not top level. <laughs> but like, like I say, I just look at that Newcastle team or the way Brentford are playing with their players. And I, I find it very hard to accept that the level of player is what's holding Tottenham back. Uh, you know, and, and that uh, Antonio Conte squeezing every last drop out of them that, that any mm. manager possibly could. Uh, I guess it's his stubbornness as well with, without, you know, sort of playing the more creative players or the tactics, but I don't know. I, I, maybe I, maybe I'm a bit too sort of focused on individual performances, but some of them are absolute tripe. You just think, <laughs> how are you even paid to be a footballer? Oh, it's abysmal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well, the coach who seems to be squeezing every drop out of his players at the moment is Unai Emery. Uh, Aston Villa, good performance from them here, looking very good. Look, look, looks like he's he's turned that ship around from the um, the doldrums of the of the Steven Gerrard days. Obviously, Lewis he had his uh, his critics during his last spell in England. Do you think uh, he might have found a project that's a bit better suited for him this time around? Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly it. I think you look at his track record. He didn't do a great job at PSG, where the expectations are incredibly high. He didn't do a great job at Arsenal where the expectation was to be in the Champions League, really that upper end of the table. He's done fantastic jobs at Sevilla, going on cup runs or in the Europa League especially. He's done the same at Villarreal. It's probably a team you'd say in Europe the last couple of seasons have punched above their weight. Champions League semi-final, Europa League. Um, and now Aston Villa. I think it's, it's quite a similar situation where you're a team that's maybe a mid-table side, lower mid-table with aspirations to be in Europe and and then maybe get there and maybe go on a run. Yeah, I think I think these are the games especially that Unai Emery is well suited to. I think my question about Unai Emery at, at Aston Villa is going to be when they play Brentford and when they play Everton and they have to break Wolves down and they play Southampton and Fulham and Crystal Palace. I think these big games where his side really are, are the underdogs, I think he really enjoys that and... They've beaten Manchester United now. They've beaten Tottenham since he arrived. I think it's a it's a really good start. They've they've only lost a couple of they've only lost one in the league. They won at Brighton as well, who are obviously having a great season. So, yeah, I think it's um, a really nice match for for Una, Emery and for Villa. Yep. Well, let's finish today with a little bit of transfer chat. Uh, you mentioned him earlier, Lewis. Jao Felix is uh, you know, looking like he's on the radar of Arsenal, Manchester United, Chelsea as well. Some talk that Atletico Madrid will, will let him go on loan for the rest of the season, but they're going to want €15 million Euros in a loan fee plus his entire wages covered, which is about €6 million Euros for that period, I believe. Is that a worthwhile investment, do you think, Lewis? Uh, £21 million for a loan, Phil. It sounds inc- like incredible sums of money doesn't it I, <laughs> yeah. you can see why why the clubs linked with him are linked with him you can see why Atletico Madrid are 
eager to get as much money in as possible after the the record fee they spent on him. I can't see anybody biting at, at 15 million for a loan fee. I think if that comes down at the end of the window, if he wants to leave, if Atletico is still trying to shop him around and, and know those clubs have bitten, I'm sure that fee will come down. And then I think it'll be quite interesting uh, yeah. to, to see and to see how he gets on in England as well if he, if he did move to England. But at 15 million, I, that feels like way too much. Yeah, I would pay the money myself to see him at Spurs. <laughs> 15 million. You've got 15 million euros lying around over your mouth? Unfortunately not. Otherwise, no offence to you guys. I'm not sure I'd be doing a podcast on a cold rainy January day. Um, uh, oh my word, he'd be exactly the kind of spark of magic that Spurs would need. Good God. It's not going to happen though. No, no. Wish, wishful, wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chelsea have made one signing already with uh, with Benoit Badiashile coming in from Monaco. Uh, there's also some talk about them splashing the cash on Argentina's uh, World Cup sensation Enzo Fernandez from Benfica. Uh, what do you make of that signing of that potential signing for them, Matt? Of, of Enzo Fernandez or Badiashile? Both. Both. Uh, I haven't watched too much of Badiashile. I obviously know about him um, through word of mouth and having watched the odd the odd highlights here. Um, from the guy, I know he's a very promising young player. I think that's definitely a future move from Chelsea and kind of fits in with, uh, you know, giving Graham Potter, what was it, a five-year deal? Um, even though he's under a bit of pressure at the minute, it kind of goes along with their uh, youthful recruitment, uh, along with the likes of Wesley Fofana. Obviously, they spent a, a, a lot of money on him from Leicester as well. And Enzo Fernandez too, who I believe is 21. Is he 21, 22 years yeah, old? Like that, yeah, um, But, ah... Uh, I, I was thinking about this earlier. 112 million, I think, is the amount that I've seen. Pounds as well, which is insane. It's a ridiculous amount of money. And like where I was talking about with the stats with Haaland earlier, where if he scores, everyone thinks, yeah, but that's all he does. And if he doesn't, you think, oh, he doesn't even score that many. How would you quantify 112 million pounds worth of success for a midfielder? I don't know. Does he just sort of break the pass completion goals. record? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what I mean. So it would be one of those that would be really difficult to place an expectation on to be like, right, he is 112 millions worth of talent because he scored X goals or X assists or any sort of stat, to be honest with you. Ball recoveries, I don't know. Um, it, w- it, would be, it would be so difficult, but you would need that. Do you know what I mean? You would need... You can't you can't say that after, I don't know, six months or say at the end of the season and Chelsea aren't in the Champions League, you couldn't say, oh, he's slotted in nicely. For 112 million, I do not expect slotted in nicely. <laughs> I'm expecting world beating at least every other week. So I think that kind of price tag is so difficult and I get that he's in demand and I get that he's a really good player, no doubt, and he's young and he fits the profile of Chelsea and pretty much every club, you know, would love a good young player with sell-on value and it's already at World Cup winning level. But that for me just seems just like extraordinary. Mm. Uh, that, that, what what could he possibly do to justify that? <laughs> Even scoring a hat trick every game yeah. might not be worth it. Like, yeah. I, d- I don't, I wouldn't say immediately. Like, if Chelsea don't w- get into the Champions League, I'd, like Chelsea are what ninth before he's even arrived. Mm. I won't pin that on him and say he's yeah. a failure. <laughs> but like, obviously they've signed, like you said, he's twenty one, so they'll be signing him for the next four, five, six, seven, eight years. But within a couple of years he he has to be the best midfielder in the league right at that price for sure like that's for sure. that's the money that took people talk about Jude Bellingham arriving for a bit more than that 
somewhere in the summer, like uh, just as a midfielder who can do everything. And you, that it has to be that. It has to be a player who can like completely control and dominate games on on their own, basically from central midfield. It's it yeah. is crazy. It's a crazy amount of money, especially because Chelsea don't score any goals, and like. <laughs> You know, I know they've got Aubameyang and, and Sterling in the summer, but they've signed Koulibaly, Fafana, Kukurella, and now they're adding Badiashile and a, a sort of holding midfielder as well. I, you know, I find that very confusing personally. I, I think Chelsea yeah. should have probably been the ones. You don't know who's available, obviously, uh, but Liverpool signed Cody Gakpo. If anyone had to go all out for a forward in January, I would have expected it to have been Chelsea and they've decided to improve the other end of the pitch instead for some reason. Yeah. And, you know, it's all well and good saying that that money is an investment for the future, but that kind of price tag can weigh heavy on a player sometimes and affect the performances. I think we've seen that quite a bit with uh, with Jack Grealish at City. I mean, I'm I'm not expecting a hat-trick every game from Grealish, but a goal every once in a while would be quite nice. If you're listening, Jack, if you could just like put one in the net <laughs> occasionally, that'd be fine. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. A hundred million for a squad player is crazy, right? Yeah. A hundred million for a squad player is mad. So big things from Enzo, I think. I feel like we say every podcast, but the game is officially gone, hasn't it? It's over. Forget it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This podcast is also over for today. So uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you to Matt and Lewis for joining me. Happy New Year to everybody. We're going to be back again later in the week uh, discussing uh, the midweek Premier League games, the return of Serie A and looking ahead to the weekend. So make sure you check that out. If you want to get in touch with the podcast with any questions or comments or queries in the meantime, the email address is podcast at onefootball.com. Listener.